0: My name is Michelle King, and my leadership lesson is to master the new world of work, we have to manage the informal.
1: Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, MT's editor. On today's episode, we interview Michelle King, who talks about the subtle science of getting ahead at work. We ask how and why we need to make management aspirational again. And after serial entrepreneur Debbie Wasco said hybrid work was a disaster waiting to happen for feminism, we ask whether she's right. That's all on today's Leadership Lessons Agenda. With me to discuss these topics are fellow MT journalists Antonia and Eilish. Welcome. The first topic is our series on why we need a management revival. We're living at a time when the cult of the individual is rife, probably prompted by social media and the idea that everyone is the main character in their own lives. Whereas management is essentially about collective endeavour and getting the best out of other people. We praise glamorous leaders and the hardworking essential workers, but the blame always falls squarely on the manager's shoulders. They are dull, ineffective. Permafrost yet empty, we believe that management is an important skill that can improve many of businesses' intractable problems, including that thorny issue of productivity. We're in this mess, Andrew Saunders argues in his feature, for a few reasons. One, leaders have managed their own PR campaign exceptionally well, perhaps a convenient way of jacking up their prices. According to the High Pay Centre, the average UK CEO earned 50 times as much as their typical employees in the 80s. But this year, the average UK CEO salary is £3.8 which is a whopping 118 times as much as the average worker. Then the war on talent has led companies to focus on promoting their kind of inspiring, high-profile, aspirational leaders, which gives them sort of sprinkle some stardust at the top to help attract other people work for them. And it's also a reflection of decades of commercial pressure and the drive to cut costs by replacing people with technology. And middle managers, unfortunately, are an easy target because their impact on the bottom line is less visible and less readily quantifiable than that of frontline workers. So in our series, we look at some simple ways we can make managers better. The first is to respect management as a crucial skill. It's probably not a coincidence that Britain's most famous manager is David Brent, the character in the hit comedy show, The Office, created by comedian Ricky Gervais. Second, you can improve your managers by hiring them intentionally. In his piece for us, Stefan Stern points out that ambitious colleagues, who may be performing well where they are, often feel obliged to take on management responsibilities even when they are not suited to that or have no particular appetite for this kind of role. And Eilish and I have definitely talked about that a few times in previous episodes. But this statistic I think is fantastic, which is that according to the Chartered Management Institute, around 80% of people promoted into management positions get no training in how to manage or lead. So we are a nation or perhaps an economy of accidental managers. Organisations that are serious about management, he says, will develop career path alternatives that are attractive to valued employees, but which also make sense for the business. Being serious about management means valuing it and rewarding people who do well. We need parity of esteem between star players and star managers. He says each makes a vital contribution. Each needs to be recognised and properly rewarded. So a management revival. Is it time for one, Antonia?
2: Yeah, so it's really curious to me, this idea that managers should be maligned, given that most of us will be familiar with the impact that your manager has on your working life. And a global study that I came across from the Workforce Institute found that 69% of employees say that managers impact their mental health, which is the same percentage as said that their mental health is impacted by their spouse or partner. Wow. And this was echoed by Celine Floyd, Director of Talent Management at Catfinity in the first piece in the series who said that on all the key indicators of performance, engagement, retention, the biggest predictor is the manager-employee relationship, which kind of seems like common sense to me. So in some senses, it's very surprising that management has kind of been overlooked by companies and by senior leadership. I'm also interested in the idea that there's almost something selfless about being a manager, i.e. that it's sort of about getting the best out of other people as opposed to what in a way is a bit more of an indulgence, which is putting your head down and getting on with producing your own best work. And I do wonder where this trope about managers has come from and to what extent it's been informed by popular culture. So you mentioned David Brent in The Office, and I think it's true that if you think about managers in kind of workplace dramas, they do tend to be very small-minded and petty and zealously exercising whatever small bit of power they have. And similarly, I suppose popular culture naturally tends to be a bit obsessed with the extremes and sort of the haves and have nots, as opposed to the middle, which is where managers kind of firmly sit.
1: Yeah, some really interesting points there. I would be interested if any of our listeners have any kind of ideas of ways to improve the situation, do write in to us. Next up is a piece of research that has found vulnerable narcissistic leaders are the most damaging to an organisation. Ailish, do you want to take us through it?
3: Yeah, so when we think of a narcissist, we tend to think of somebody who is egotistic, attention-seeking, and lacks quite a lot of empathy. And these are very sort of negative traits. But there are some sort of positive traits that narcissists have that are often valued within a business setting. They've got a lot of self-confidence. They tend to be more extroverted and very dynamic. But Jane Sims, who wrote the piece, says that narcissism is often a very misunderstood behavioural disorder and that there is a type of narcissism that is particularly insidious because the behaviours that these people display are a lot more challenging to handle than the traditional sense of entitlement that we think of, of narcissists having. So these are called vulnerable or covert narcissists and they're almost the polar opposite of what we think a narcissist is. These are people who are deeply insecure, they're incredibly defensive, and they often come across as a little bit neurotic. And it's because these behaviours are designed to mask their own sort of sense of incompetence and feelings of inadequacy. So They are known for being quite micromanaging or they blame other people for their own failures. And academics within the piece have coined this term vulnerable narcissistic leader behaviour or VNLB. The challenge with these types of leaders is it can be very difficult to figure out what they want. They can be incredibly difficult to read, particularly in times of crisis where Employees and teams are looking for extra support and guidance from their leaders. But if they've got this type of narcissistic leader, they're going to be much more focused on their own sense of failure and looking for ways to blame other people for things that are going wrong rather than being strong and taking charge of a situation they're going to be a lot weaker as a as a leader
2: yeah I think that researchers came across it was almost a bit of a vicious cycle right so one of the vulnerable narcissistic behaviors that they have flagged was a heightened need for affirmation as you mm-hmm. mentioned and yet particularly in those times of crisis the strain caused by the leaders incompetence and having to second guess what they want on others in the organisation means that there's less bandwidth among those employees to give them the loyalty and respect that they crave, which in turn elicits a negative reaction in the leader and kind of feeds the cycle. Mm.
3: Yeah, as I said, it is is a vicious cycle. And the end goal here is, according to the academics in the piece, they believe that if teams are able to detect and understand their leader's behaviour, then they can deal with it more effectively. But the question that that I have and one that I would post to to you both and to our listeners at home is whose responsibility is it to manage the manager or lead the leader? Should it be an employee's job to manage their manager and manage their leader's behaviour? Is it their responsibility or is it something that a leader needs to change themselves? (laughs) (laughs) Good
1: good question. Good question. (laughs) We've gone quiet. I'm going to take the weak answer and say a bit of both. (laughs) I think it depends also on the extremity of the leader's behavior, but obviously as a leader, you need to be conscious of how your behavior impacts upon your team because your job is to lead people, Mm in the title. So you need to be behaving in a way that is a bit like the manager is Mm -hmm. getting the best out of people is getting people to, you know, sign up to your kind of mission Mm -hmm. to be kind of engaged within it. And everything you read about being a good leader says, the first step is to understand yourself. Mm. And the better you understand yourself, the better leader you're gonna be because you can mitigate any kind of flaws and you can kind of work out the best way for you to deal with those people. That said, there is a sort of pragmatic element mm. to being somebody that has a manager or, or a leader and that is working out how to work best with them and how mm. to get the best out of them. And you know, nobody's perfect. Everyone has shortcomings and a good team is one that can collectively work together so that you're stronger as a team. Like, nobody is the finished article I themselves. Our last topic in this episode is something that came up at the inaugural Women in Work Summit, which I attended last week. It was a great event with lots of interesting speakers discussing how to improve women's health initiatives in the workplace and how to progress gender equality. In particular, there was a discussion between serial entrepreneur Debbie Wasco and researcher and former MT columnist Christine Armstrong about whether working from home was a help or a hindrance to women's careers. It was a really good panel session because they both had very strong opinions and weren't afraid to um, share them. Wasco said, it's a disaster waiting to happen for feminism. She said, it really worries her in a world where women become less visible because her point is she thinks that women are disproportionately choosing to do the hybrid work, working from home because they're trying to fit in all the other kind of obligations they may have in their lives. Whereas the men are in the office. And she said that she is seeing from her experience of being around various different businesses that there are fewer and fewer women in the room and yet the men are still there. And she's saying that that's a real challenge and she's really concerned that it's going to put women back in the workforce because they are just no longer physically in those spaces. And she repeatedly said it's incredibly difficult to close fundraising rounds on zoom or making any decisions or having any real impact on zoom particularly if everybody else is sat around in the office working together or in these you know meeting rooms where decisions are being made on how to invest or spend money which i think was a really interesting point and it definitely struck a chord with the audience christine armstrong however pushed back and said that actually She didn't agree that men were tending to work from the office more than women. And there was a bit of debate about, you know, what the facts are in that situation. But she said it's a good thing for men and women to be able to shape their lives differently working from home. And she also said you can mitigate some of the challenges of being less visible on the days you're not working by on the days you are actually going into the office going in, doing the meetings, thinking about your networks, meet former colleagues for lunch. And if you consciously think about how you spend your time, rather than the way it was before, where you were five days a week in the office and just sort of fell into meeting people. She said, if you're conscious about it, you can mitigate any kind of potential risks. I think it's a really fascinating debate and I'd love to know what you two think on it.
2: I mean, I think that's an interesting point about being intentional with your time. I mean, there are definitely conversations that are better face-to-face or sort of objectives that you can make swift progress on when you're with people in person. I guess that does come down to how good you are at time management. It's easy to sort of make a list and divide up your tasks by days of the week, but it's a different job sort of sticking to that. But I think in general, there's sort of echoes in this conversation of the discussion we were having about managers in terms of what sort of qualities are celebrated and venerated and which aren't. So... You can be very productive working from home, but I think a lot of the more strategic decisions tend to take place in the office and in face-to-face interactions. And that's the sort of stuff that's celebrated as opposed to getting your head down and churning out good work. So if there is any substance to the idea that women are in the office less, then I can see how that is potentially a big problem.
3: I wanted to pose this idea to um, Management Today readers. And I have a couple of responses from three chief executives on this topic. So Stacy Quackenbush, which is a fabulous name, says, remote and hybrid work by nature supports the feminist agenda by giving women the ability to prioritise their time to support their personal priorities and professional ambitions. This benefits employers by creating a company culture that resonates with female applicants and helps retain top talent. This, coupled with the fact that companies with women in leadership roles are more profitable, is a win-win for all. However, Dr David Lenehan says, Hybrid work can negatively impact women's abilities to advance in their careers, not because they're women, but because they're not making it, or are unable to make it, a priority to demonstrate their unique skills, experience, and attributes in person and on-site to upper management. Whether it's because of family responsibilities or other reasons, women choose to work mostly remotely with little or no presence in the office. And that's absolutely fine. He emphasises that the idea of doing that is absolutely fine. However, they then shouldn't expect to ascend the ranks within their organisations. And again, he emphasises that this isn't because they're women. This is because of the development of in-person, interpersonal relationships with peers, especially superiors, builds trust, familiarity and career building opportunities. But similarly to a point that was brought up about being more intentional with your time when you are in the office... Ruth Kudsey says, as women, we need to consider how we can be visible without just being in the office, being mindful of the meetings we choose to attend, participating in online co-working, building relationships through networks, interacting on platforms such as LinkedIn, getting involved in mentoring, and also finding ways we could be mentored. Visibility isn't just about being chained to a desk or stuck in the office.
1: There is something about visibly being there and the relationships are, are the things that are going to help you get ahead in the workforce. So I, th- I think that's kind of a really interesting point, but it's definitely one that I think women are going to have to or anybody that chooses to work at home. It could be a man as well. That Presumably these similar barriers might apply to them, too. How do you kind of manage that? And so while speaking of trying to get ahead in the office, that's something that comes up in our interview this week with Michelle King. Antonia, you did the interview. So who is she and what does she say?
2: Yeah, so Dr. Michelle King is a researcher, speaker and author whose new book, How Work Works, The Subtle Science of Getting Ahead Without Losing Yourself is available from this week. At the centre of our conversation was this notion of reading the air, which essentially means understanding the unwritten norms and expectations which govern the workplace. Michelle argues that being able to manage the informal side of working life is key to getting ahead and sort of accelerating in your career. So in our conversation, we discuss why, how you can develop these skills, and the impact of changes like hybrid working on our ability to interpret unwritten cues. Great, so that's it for this week. And now onto the interview with Michelle King. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. You're the author of How Work Works, the subtle science of getting ahead without losing yourself which comes out this week. The ability to, as you put it in the book, read the air is core to the framework that you put forward for getting ahead. Can you explain what this means and when you first started to recognise its importance?
0: Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. The importance of reading the air, which is just a term I use for managing the informal side of working life, is something I discovered about 10 years ago when I first started researching this topic. So I'm a researcher. And I really looked at how workplaces function. And while most workplaces have formal policies, rules, and procedures, the reality is that how work gets done really happens in day to day interactions in the informal. And so I always say that how we work matters in some ways more than what we do because the how enables what we can achieve. So, how we collaborate, how we work together, how we practice inclusion, all of that enables our ability to achieve results. So, for me, wanting to understand the informal really became apparent early on in my career because anyone listening to this will be able to think of somebody they know who has done this, but you would always witness people sort of advancing in their career and thinking, you know, how did they get there? Like they don't have the qualifications or necessarily the experience to get in those roles. And, you know, in studying why that happened and how it happened, it became really apparent that when it comes to your development, your advancement, how people network, how they share information, all of that happens in the informal. And back in the day, that tended to be pretty exclusionary. And that world of work is changing and has changed. And so it's really important for us to understand you know, how we need to show up today and why that's different. Yeah,
2: I mean, you describe it as the new world of work that we're all navigating at the moment and obviously will kind of accelerate. And I think you suggest that technological advancements are gonna continue to change jobs in ways that bring the sort of human or interpersonal skills to the fore. Why do you think that that will be the case?
0: So it might feel counterintuitive, but in my book, I really share how workplaces have changed. So for me, you know, we keep saying the future is coming. The future is already here. So the changes are already here. What we're seeing is really across the board, there is a demand for increased technical roles, but aligned with that is for each of those roles, because people have to work with other people. In order to do those technical roles, they actually need quite advanced social and emotional skills. So in other words, the ability to manage all of that informal aspects of work. What we're also seeing is diversification of customers. So demographically, as companies become more global, you're probably going to work for people who don't look like you, don't share your background. The same when it comes to talent. So increasingly, you're going to have to learn to bridge your differences with others. That's something a lot of us are familiar with. But maybe something people are less familiar with is that workplaces are also, becoming less formalized. So we're seeing globally sort of a reduction in hierarchies. You're seeing mid-level managers, it's predicted and forecasted, those roles are going to slowly disappear. Because particularly in a hybrid world of work, you've got really self-managing teams. They don't need mid-level managers in exactly the same way. So increasingly, your performance is going to be rated by your peers. And in fact, some studies predict even your pay might be determined by your peers. So your ability to work with others to achieve outcomes is going to be very, very important in this increasingly flat, structured organisation and self-managing teams, all of that you know, really increases the need for your ability to navigate the social and emotional aspects of work.
2: I mean, you mentioned their hybrid working. Do you think that some of the changes that we've already seen in the world of work, potentially hinder our ability to read the air, read the room, read between the lines, whatever you want to call it? How, for example, can we kind of learn about the unwritten norms that govern an organisation if we're kind of mainly communicating via Zoom? Can we do that?
0: So managing the informal is very, very difficult in a hybrid world of work. So the virtual aspect of work, I have a whole separate rant on this, but it just makes managing how we work a lot harder. So I'll give you a quick example. You're on a Zoom call, somebody has their camera off, you're going to make a whole bunch of assumptions around why that is none of which might actually be correct. And you're on a Zoom call, somebody's talking, you're not seeing any of their context, you're not understanding any of their social norms. If if the person even has their camera on, studies show it's a lot harder to pick up things like tone, body language, all of that that they might be conveying. And so as a result, we just make really bad assumptions about what's actually going on, what's actually being said. I think, you know, even from an inclusion standpoint, there's a ton of data points out there showing that virtual working, it's a lot harder to be inclusive. So I think just generally, it can be quite challenging to manage an informal in a hybrid world of work. And it's a skill that a lot of us have to develop. So for me, what it really means is we've got to sort of over-invest in our ability to do this both in person and virtually.
2: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned about tone, and it is sometimes difficult if someone sends you a message on Google Meet or over email You can sort of almost endow it with a tone that is actually not the meaning at all behind it. Do you think that the roles and responsibilities of leaders in particular are hindered by remote working?
0: A lot of leaders, you know, when we switched to a hybrid world of work, we didn't necessarily equip leaders to manage in that context. So leadership is context specific. And I think a lot of leaders were still applying their old way of leading to this new virtual context or hybrid context, so if you've got a mix of both. And I think they're very different ways of leading. So, for example, we know that overwhelmingly, you know, you've seen a reduction in women in in the workforce. And when you look at the factors behind it, a lot of it is ambiguity. So we're back to informality, ambiguity around tasks around work times around workloads feeling a lot of stress a lot of burnout because they're not being managed adequately so for me it's even less around hybrid more around hey what are the outcomes of hybrid it is informality an increase in ambiguity do leaders know how to lead people through that how to coach them how to provide feedback how to help them understand what it is they need to do and how to do that differently in in a world environment that is a lot more informal and ambiguous
2: yeah and, and at the same time I guess you've got anxiety that's precipitated by all of these other changes going on in the background, whether it's AI or whatever else. Obviously, you're a big advocate of the importance of being able to interpret the unwritten norms of the workplace. Do you think that without the ability to read the air that you'll inevitably reach a point in your career beyond which you won't be propelled just by virtue of your brilliance alone? Or do you think you can actually reach the top roles by dint of your experience and the hard work that you put in?
0: So I'm a researcher, so I never really share my opinion. So I'll tell you what the data tells us. The data tells us that most people prefer to work with what the research term, this is not my term, is a lovable fool versus a competent jerk. So I think the data tells us that we like to work with people who are easy to work with. That makes sense because next to sleep, work is where we spend the most number of hours, right? And so I think what we need to recognize is that it's really important to enjoy your work experience. That's not something we tell people a lot. And so we want to work with people who are easy to work with. I think one of the challenges with people who are those technical jerks or people who really don't manage the impact their behavior is having, because that's what it means to manage the informal, is they lack self-awareness. So one of the four areas that I focus on in my book is managing informal information sharing. And really what that comes down to is the informal information get at work helps to build your self-awareness. We know that competent jerks tend to be people who just lack self-awareness, right? They don't know how others see them. They don't know how that differs from how they see themselves. They don't do anything to close that gap. And I think one of the challenges with those individuals, they tend to overestimate their performance. Now, the data tells us that simply having one person who overestimates their performance and their ability on your team can reduce your team's performance by 50%. So, what we have to do is really think about the different ways, even for individuals who might be technically competent, that we can give them the skills and the self awareness. Understand how they're showing up and manage some of the behaviors they're engaging in that maybe negatively impact the people they work with. Because I like to think nobody's a lost cause, everybody can improve, even if it's just within a range. And we've got to think about how we give people the skills to do that.
2: Okay, so it's a skill that you can learn, but I assume that there must be some sort of personality traits or attributes that kind of better equip you to be able to navigate the informal side of working life, whether that's sort of empathy, inquisitiveness powers of observation
0: yeah i mean i think if i had to say you know what is the one trait obviously from a personality perspective you know everything you've just mentioned is helpful i think the big one though for me is the person curious when it comes to themselves. So without self-awareness, you can't develop other awareness. It's going to make it really hard for you to connect and build networks. It's going to make it really hard for you to understand what areas you need to develop in. And without all of that, you're not going to have the growth. You're not going to learn in order to advance. So all of it becomes a bit unstuck. So if I was to say to somebody, you know, start here, it would be thinking about how you develop your self-awareness. So if I can, I want to give everybody a practice, something you can do today to do that. So one research study found if you just take 15 minutes a day for 10 days to reflect on your experience at work and to think about in that day, what went well, what didn't, what could I do differently, right? So just take 15 minutes to reflect on that, maybe even five minutes on each of those questions. So what went well, what didn't, what could I do differently? You do that for 10 days, what you will find is your self-awareness will increase by about 25%. So for me, it's not necessarily saying there's some people that just can read the end, other people can't, like that, that's not how this works. It's really about saying, look, where are you at and, and are you investing and building your ability to do this?
2: I think another concept that you raised in the book was this idea of what you call the ambiguity paradox. And if I understood it correctly, that was the idea that our ability to manage ambiguity is decreasing at a time when sort of workplaces are becoming more informal and therefore there's perhaps more need to be able to read between the lines. You highlight millennials in particular as a generation that struggles with ambiguity. I'm curious why that's the case, and what kind of examples are you thinking of what sort of behaviours?
0: So this isn't in the book, but I did research why it's actually declining. And so there are a number of studies that actually show, we love to blame social media for everything, but that actually show one of the challenges with ambiguity, which is really the ability to solve problems that are maybe complex, that don't have like a ready-made solution, reading between the lines of what's being said at work, navigating new and complex challenges, like all of that, right? Our comfort in situations that are not really clear. We don't get all instructions on how to do a task. All of that is really in that bucket of managing ambiguity. What we found is that the increased use of social media has actually decreased our ability to manage ambiguity. One of the reasons that you pointed out at the beginning of the show is because it's a lot harder, right, to manage and to read social cues in a virtual setting. So even on social media, if you're using that every day or if you're calling people virtually, all of that, there's very little nuance, right? People have to sort of be a bit more direct in terms of what they're saying. And I always think of any of those dating apps. If you don't like somebody, you know, I don't know if it's a swipe left or swipe right, but you swipe one way, right? And that's a lot different to 20, 30 years ago where you would go to a bar and have to look at someone across the room and try and see if that person's catching your eye. If they're in you've got to read their body. So these are one of the reasons why it's become a little bit harder to navigate that. Now, again, that doesn't mean if all millennials are terrible at it. The data we have today really just showed for that particular group they found this a bit more challenging and a good example of it how it shows up at work if anyone's thinking well what does this look like at work in the data what we found was people would typically if you're a millennial you're going to want very specific instructions on when to deliver a task by so say your boss says look i'd like that report on monday if he says it would be nice to get it on monday what he's meaning if he's a boomer is I want that report by 5 p.m. on Monday. Now, what the millennial hears is, hey, that would be nice to Monday, but, you know, if I get it by Tuesday, no big deal. So we found there's real discrepancies in time management, in deadline management, in challenges on that side and also on the feedback side. So overwhelming younger generations wanting a lot more feedback on how they come across because they're not picking up the subtle sort of cues like, yeah, that's fine. It's great. I don't need to overemphasize how amazing you're doing. So we found that I think if you're a manager, managing somebody maybe who's in that generational group, make sure you're providing very concise instructions. Make sure you're managing workloads and make sure you're giving very specific feedback.
2: That's really interesting. So do you think that leaders can support their workplace more broadly to kind of develop tacit knowledge and be able to understand the unwritten cues or do you think that that's not really their role? A hundred
0: percent. I feel like leaders should be coaching through this. One of the challenges we've got that you and I have not touched on yet is in the book, I actually share how the world of work has changed. So obviously what I call the old world of work, which is typically if you think of like the 1950s and the way that workplaces were structured people in positions of power tended to be white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied men, right? And typically, the way the informal was managed was to keep power with that group. So a good example is networking. Informal networking tended to be very close, So white men tend to network with other white men. And that worked for them up until really now. So what we're seeing in workplaces is the increase in diversity of or demographic diversity of employees has actually changed the nature of networking. Arguably, one of the worst things you can do if you're a white male is only network with other white men. Why? Because 70% of your jobs come through the informal network, which means... You have to build that informal network in order to access, you know, future jobs. Most people don't stay in the same job, right? So your employability, your ability to get jobs to really advance in your career depends on your ability to bridge differences with others and have diverse networks. Studies have found leaders in that top 20% have a diversified network high potentials in the top 20% actively manage their informal network. So what we need to do is to get leaders to understand, look, there are really four things that it, what it boils down to that helps a person manage their informal. If they can manage their informal networks, if they can manage that informal information in terms of developing that self-awareness, developing that other awareness, if they can manage their informal development, and if they can manage their informal advancement, if they can do those four things, they're not only you know, going to be more fulfilled in their job in advance and advance and feel like they're making a contribution, but they're also going to potentially benefit their co-workers.
2: And you do a lot of work on gender inequality in the workplace as well, don't you? And your first book, The Fix, was kind of looking at the obstacles that were holding back women. Did you find any gender dimension in your research for this book, for example, that women were focusing on working hard as a means of getting ahead? as opposed to maybe navigating the sort of politics of the workplace, if you want to call it that? Or is that completely irrelevant? And actually, those aren't any of the factors that are holding back women at work?
0: So I um, very much adopt the don't fix women, fix workplaces philosophy. And the reason for that is my PhD looked at literally this topic. So how politics plays out in workplaces, and how men and women engage in it in two different countries. And Consistently, what I found is women are masters of this simply because organizations are set up to have all these wonderful what we call double binds, right, where women are expected to display masculine characteristics, but to do that in a way that's feminine. So, for example, you might tell a woman in leadership, you need to be assertive, you need to be confident, you need to be a bit more leader-like. And the problem is all of that's associated with stereotypically masculine behaviours. So when a woman displays that, she defies the standard for what good looks like for women, and she's a lot less likeable, right? So all of that plays out. So saying to women, hey, you've got to engage in politics. For me, politics is a dirty word because it's associated with that old world of working where there is no right way. So an informal network is a classic example of that. Women can informally network and do everything to try and build that informal network. But if you have a group of white male leaders who are closed to that network and don't engage, it's very, very difficult for for women to break in. So for me, it's less about what can women do and more about understanding. This is a shared problem that all of us have to learn how do we work together, how do we navigate the informal, and how do we do that in a way that actually benefits everybody.
2: In terms of your own career, you were the director of inclusion at Netflix. Can you tell me a bit about that role and what you learned from it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I tend not to talk specifically about specific roles, just out of respect for the organizations I've worked for and the people I've worked with. But I think Netflix, I was the director of inclusion in LA, and it was a great role. You know, got an opportunity to look at how we apply our allyship programs. At the time, Netflix is sort of beginning its journey in the inclusion space to work with some incredible people and I think you know it's really interesting when you look at companies like Netflix where they're really looking at what I call mainstreaming so if we think about where's inclusion going you know my term is always mainstreaming mainstreaming is where it's going and that's I've worked the United Nations for five years and mainstreaming I think is a gender term that might be why I'm so familiar with it people might be thinking what do you mean by mainstreaming but what we mean by that is where it's not just about I attended this unconscious bias course or I did this inclusive act in a meeting or I called out inequality when I saw it. That's not really enough for inclusion to become a fundamental way of working. We have to think about, well, how do we do this as part of our jobs? So when it comes to content companies like Netflix produce or when it comes to the diversity of actors in a particular show, like thinking about how are we embedding an inclusion lens into everything that we do so it becomes just a fundamental way of working. And I always draw on the analogy of safety. So if you think of I worked in mining as well and in oil and gas Those companies approach safety like a fundamental way of working. It's not just a policy or practice. It's not just something leaders talk about. It's something everybody does as part of their job. For you to do your job, you've got to know how to do that in a safe way, even in an office. And so I think that's exactly where we want to get to with inclusion. And that was great to be a part of that conversation at Netflix.
2: Yeah, and I guess it's like you say, thinking about how it affects all aspects. So if you took the media industry, for example, I guess it's not just about having inclusion and representation in the actual workforce, but how that is then translates into your coverage as well. Do you think that the demands of being a CEO or a business leader are greater today than previously, given sort of the complexities of the global economy and the rapid pace of technological change and all of those factors that we kind of previously discussed?
0: Yes, I think it has changed because if we come back to the book, I think my argument is that back in the day what we did really enabled what we could achieve. So there were actually quite a few jobs where you could turn up, sit down, do your job, and leave, right? And to manage that, to be the CEO of an organization where you've got a bunch of individual contributors that maybe report to one manager who come in, do their job, leave, it's quite easy in a way to build an organizational culture that supports that way of working. You have a hierarchy, you have policies and processes, you have managers that tell employees what to do, command and control, transactional way of working. That's gone. Today, 83% of individuals in organizations have to work with other people to get their job done. So, building a culture that is much more what we call transformational, so a culture that's more democratic, caring, empathetic, inclusive, all of that requires we shift the focus from what we do to, to how we do it. And I think the problem is a lot of leaders still lead in that transactional way and are wondering why their business isn't seeing the innovation, isn't seeing the collaboration, isn't seeing the competitiveness that they want to see. So, I'll give you a quick example in environments that are more inclusive, the research shows that the study by Accenture over the last ten years has shown employees are six times more likely to have an innovation mindset. So we think these things are separate; they're not right. Like the, there's a direct relationship between your ability to problem solve, create, innovate, and your ability to build an environment where people know how to manage their interactions with one another. So I think that shift for a lot of leaders is a tricky one because the default is the what, because it's easy. So focusing on profits, focusing on costs, focusing on you know, productivity, all of that's really easy. The stuff I'm talking about is really difficult. That's why even writing the book is difficult, because we're talking about something that's informal, that happens in our day-to-day interactions. And managing that lived experience of employees' interactions is literally what it means to manage culture. So, can you tell me how the average employee experiences your organization? And does that enable everything you're trying to achieve? And for most leaders, managing culture is something that's often an afterthought. They'll say it's important, but how many of them can actually share specific things they're doing every day to manage how people are experiencing the organization?
2: And I guess that's probably one of the difficulties of remote working, and probably one of the reasons why a lot of leaders have been keen to get their employees back into the office. So even just in the sense that it's easier to take the temperature on how everyone's experiencing the workplace. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned about leadership from your own experience and what you've observed in organisations that you've advised? I think the biggest lesson
0: is I so readily accepted that the dominant, assertive, aggressive, competitive and exclusionary way of leading that um, actually permeates about 97% of organisations, that's our standard for how leaders are meant to show up. You know, I readily accepted that that was what good looked like. And it wasn't until 20 years ago now, I'm showing my age, but that I started really researching the topic that I came to realise that not only is that not the standard, that engaging in that those behaviours is not going to result in the outcomes I want. It's actually really detrimental to me and to the people that I work with. And so, I think realizing that really became the basis for me wanting to do the work that I do to help give other managers the freedom to question a lot of the behaviours and norms they're being encouraged to engage in. So we know that the majority of mid level managers don't do a great job. So when we look at employees' experiences of inclusion or employees' experiences of mental health or abilities to collaborate and be productive in in team meetings, you look at all the characteristics of high-performing teams, just as an example, all of it comes down to managers' ability to help engage people, help employees make a contribution. And a lot of managers just don't know how to do that. And so I think... All of my work really boils down to helping disrupt people's perceptions of what good looks like when it comes to leading. And if we don't, companies really run a risk of people leaving. So you look at all the data points on quiet quitting, on burnout, on why employees are leaving, why your top talent's leaving. It is 100% down to leaders not knowing how to lead. So the data points on burnout are exquisite, because when you look at it, it's all manager capabilities, not managing workloads, not managing deadlines, not helping integrate work-life balance, not being clear on what the role requirements are, all of that. And so, you know, this push to quickly go back to in-person working, I think, is actually a foolish one, because hybrid working is the new world of work. I have a long rant in the book about how cost companies but I'm like everything costs, even working in person costs. So we've got to recognise the costs and manage them. We can't just ignore them and demand everybody comes back in. I think what companies have to do is recognise the reason we like coming people back in is because it brings that transparency back and we're really uncomfortable in the ambiguity and, and that hybrid working creates. So I think we haven't equipped leaders, so it's absolutely no surprise leaders want it back to the old way because that's what they're familiar with. That's what they're used to. And I think companies that do that are doing themselves a disservice because right now they have an opportunity to redefine what it means to lead.
2: That's really interesting. And I think that feels like a good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been really great to talk to you. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.